Hey, podcast listeners, the topics are pouring in through our text messaging pod ring is what I'm calling you. You can join it. 833-947-3684. Text the word pod. And then just send us messages. We interact with you, answer your questions about products and classes, and take your suggestions so that we can have a great podcast show. You're listening to the Brave Writer Podcast. I'm Julie Bogart. The Brave Writer Podcast is designed to support parents who take an active interest in their children's education, whether you homeschool or not. Today's guest on the Brave Writer Podcast is Yael Schonbrunn. She is a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University and co-host of Psychologists Off the Clock, a podcast about the science and practice of living well. She's also the mother of three. Yael's academic research explores the interaction between relationship problems and mental health conditions. She's authored chapters in several books and has written dozens of scientific articles. But here's the great news. She has a brand new book coming out called Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. I invited Yael to be on this podcast because even though most of my audience spends their days educating their children, I know many of you have side gigs, some of you work full-time, and all of you are working because home education is a career all by itself. When I read Yael's book, I found much support for all the various roles that you take on as a parent, as an awesome adult, and as somebody who is a working person. I hope that you can take these ideas to heart that we share today, and by all means, purchase her book. It's just out now, and I'm excited for you to get some new tools in your toolkit. Well, hello, Yael. I'm so excited to finally meet you, uh, you know, via Zoom, but in person. How are you? I'm good. And the the excitement is definitely mutual. I'm a huge fan of all that you do, your podcast, your writing, your talks. Um, you're you're such a, an amazing resource. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for saying that. Well, I loved your book, Work, Parent, Thrive. First of all, any title that has the word thrive in it is one that draws <laughs> me immediately. Uh, before we get into the contents of the book, how did you come to the place where you wanted to write this book about this topic? Yeah. So I wrote it because I became a working parent. And, you know, <laughs> I think everybody who writes a book probably writes the book that they really wanted to read. And what I really wanted to read was that there was a way through. And most of what's out there just really talks about the systemic issues, the the sort of, and they are real, right? The policy issues of lack of family leave when you have a child, the workplace inflexibility, the marital inequality where women are just expected to do most of the child rearing whilst maintaining a job. But for me as a psychologist, as a clinical psychologist and one who specializes in relationships, I just really 
and one who's really enamored with positive psychology, sort of this idea that it's really more about our response to our challenges than the challenges themselves that makes for our happiness. I was really searching and want yearning for a book that kind of spoke to like, what do we do? Like in our day to day, like I'm not a policymaker, so I'm not going to be the one who changes how much maternity leave I get. But what do I do today and tomorrow and next year with the fact that I have a job and I have kids and I want both to be a part of my life and I want to do well in both. And what was so amazing is that even though the literature in sort of in the bookstores wasn't there to kind of speak to what I wanted, I found some really cool nuggets in academic science. And that is what this book is based on, this idea that our roles have a relationship with one another. And it's not just all about conflict. There are really magical ways that our roles help each other out and make our lives better, make our work better, make our parenting better. And, and that to me is um, was really what I wanted and what I'm hoping to give parents who are looking for something similar. That's a great reason to write a book. I agree. So often what we write comes from our own personal experiences. And then you did such a beautiful job with the research and substantiating the claims and the practices that you offer to readers. So we're in kind of a unique context. And my guess is you won't have a lot of podcasts that talk about women who are not just parents, not just working, but also taking on this full-time task of home educating, educating their own children. I know that a lot of my listeners not only do those two tasks, parenting and educating, some of them have a side hustle. You know, it might be an Etsy shop. It might be part-time work as, uh, you know, a substitute teacher, something like that. But some of them actually write to me and say, hi, I'm a full-time employed outside the home mom who is homeschooling, can I do that? And of course, that to me does sound incredibly challenging. Uh, I give whatever advice I can. But what I wanted to really focus on was this part-timing, because you do a really good job of talking about this, the role switching that we go through when we are working and we are parents. For homeschoolers, then it's like separated into three categories. We've got the mindset that is a part-time job, which is preparing a curriculum to teach for our children. We've got the part of us whose hearts beat for our children and we want to nurture and play and just know them as our children. And then we have this third component, which is finding hours when we're the most tired to do a job. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you will be able to give some additional insight into how to manage when we have so many sort of fragmented pieces of ourselves to juggle. Yeah, that is such a challenge. And I will say that in general, I'm not a homeschooling parent, but I wrote this during the heart of the pandemic right at the front end. I went, I went under contract to write this book um, in October. So it was sort of a few months after the pandemic started. And there I was, you know, with my kids at home, my husband has a very traditional and pretty rigid day. And so I would homeschool and be with my three kids who were pretty young, like three, six, and 10 at the time. So my three-year-old was not pleased to be home. He's kind of a social creature. So it was pretty painful. And then my husband would finish his work at five and take over and I was spent and then I would get to write. So I, I can really appreciate the challenge, the, the pain of it. And here's here's a couple of things that we know from from psychological science that I think is helpful. So one is that, um, well, 
we don't multitask well, but we can task switch. And so if you think about how you do each of your roles, the more effective way to do it is to focus one at a time. So when you're doing curriculum, focus on that. And if you have distracting thoughts about, um, you know, your outside of the home job, write them down, get them out of your head and onto a piece of paper or into your phone so that they're not distracting you because we don't multitask well. What you can do is you have that notepad and then very deliberately switch from one to the other, right? So have these, and and for many people, one thing that helps that switching happen more effortlessly is to develop rituals around switching. So sort of, for example, I give the example in the book of that I... um, make myself a hot cup of something. You know, if it's early in the day, it's coffee. If it's later in the day, it's tea. And that I sort of take a mindful moment to take a sip of whatever it is that I made myself. And that's sort of the cue to my body. And what we know from neurological science is that when we cue ourselves, we actually switch more effortlessly. And so that's kind of what you want to do. You want to be mindful and present in the role that you're at to get the most out of that time. The other thing that I always like to tell working parents of any kind is that Uh, it is actually really useful to be fully in the role in terms of recharging for your other roles. So when you are fully in parent role and you're fully stepped out of work role, that's an opportunity to actually rest your work self. And that's a great thing because then when you return to work, you're fully recharged or at least partially recharged for doing your work, but then that's your opportunity to rest from parenting. And so one of the things that can interfere with that is our guilty thoughts like, oh, I should be with my kids or, oh, I'm not working on my task. And a helpful strategy for that is to just acknowledge that your mind is trying to help you to do all the jobs that you think are really important, that are really that really are important to you, um, but to come back to the role and recognize that you'll do your best work in each role if you allow yourself to be present for the role that you're in and to take a full break from the role that you're not in. So this is actually a concept called psychological detachment. It's like turning fully off of whatever role you're not in is really helpful for resting for that role. So even though you're not like on a beach taking a rest, it's actually a different kind of way to take a rest. And we can use our different roles and the pressure to be in them as a way to rest from each role in turn. Gosh, what an what an incredibly insightful way to think about it. I know for me, I worked from home while I was homeschooling and I was mostly writing and working on building Brave Writer at a later time. I started out just as a freelance writer. And one of the things that I noticed is that I tended to try to do both at once. So I'd have my kids in the same room while I was working on writing. And I have a capacity to tolerate a lot of chaos just as a temperament. But once I got into grad school, I had business, grad school, homeschool, and kids. That's when I got broken. (laughs) And I started... sounds like something that would break most mortals. (laughs) Yeah, right? And I suddenly realized that I did my best thinking and writing when I left the house and went to a library where it was actually quiet. And what would happen, I didn't realize this is what was happening, but I was actually for the first time in my life taking a true break. I was going away and investing deeply in my thinking and in my writing And then when I came back, I wasn't thinking about my writing. I was actually thinking about my children, thinking about homeschool. And 
until you made that comment, I did not realize that's partly why I enjoyed it so much. I used to feel a little guilty. I would skip out the door going to grad school like, yay, like it was a vacation. But I think that's why, because I had finally developed a system that gave me permission to leave one role and move into something that used a completely different side of my brain. You talk a lot about how work and parenting contribute to each other, not something I had considered before. Can you discuss that a little bit? Sure. And I just want to pause it on the example that you gave, because it is a really great way that work and parenting contribute to each other. And I'm sure that a lot of your homeschooling listeners feel really depleted by parenting and homeschooling at the end of the day. And they may see their side gigs as something that they do that might be indulgent. And just shifting the frame on that and seeing it as something that they do for themselves that actually makes them better as homeschoolers and better as parents because they can recharge for this role that is so energy intensive and and that you might love it but but like anything you know it's like the heart the heart can only beat 24 hours a day because it rests between beats the same thing goes with parenting and homeschooling and any other demanding task so you know switching the frame can help release some of that guilt and the guilt is really part of what causes the burnout because it never allows us a true break so if we can kind of let that guilt go access that true break in whatever form it takes, whether it's stepping into a side gig or your full-time employment or a hobby that you love and letting go of the parenting role and, and really being fully immersed in the other kinds of things that you're doing, it'll actually serve your parenting really, really well, your homeschooling really well. You know, I always noticed that work, I, I kind of joke about it all the time, that work is a kind of salvation because there is this um, affirmation of the adult you were working so hard to become. You know, when you become a parent, it's like you go back to zero. You have to start all over learning to walk, right? Because <laughs> you're living so much through each of the experiences of your children. And yet you got to adulthood with this promise that all the education and experiences and maturing were going to lead to an, an adult identity. And so for me, work always felt like, yay, I'm doing the thing I worked so hard to become. I'm not just going backwards and starting over with childhood yet again. But I hadn't thought about it as like a vacation also. And I think that's how I've always experienced it. The other thing yeah. about work that happens is you receive affirmation for what you do in a way that your children never feel required to give it to you. They are not there as employees. They're not there as colleagues. They're really there completely taking your love for granted as they should. But as a human being, I have a need for someone to say, well done, Julie. <laughs> do you find that with your work? Totally. I mean, and the, the best outcome that we can imagine for good parenting is like our kids go off and leave an independent, healthy life where they don't need us, right? And and there's, you know, on the one hand, it's so affirming, but but then you're like not necessary, which feels so, you know, leaves you with kind of an empty feeling. And so I think work or hobbies or whatever kind of non-parenting endeavors you sink yourself into, you can access some of what you can't get from parenting. We can get so much from parenting. There's this great quote that I love from Sigmund Freud, where he says, love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. And I think this kind of gets at the identity. It's like, we, we can't just be 
we can just be parents, but it, it is hard to sort of get all of our needs met if we only have one role where we're meeting them. It's kind of like the, the wisdom on marriage, right? We shouldn't get all of our relationship needs met from one person because it, it just isn't realistic. And we're a lot more likely to be happy and in the marriage and outside of it if we sort of spread our eggs around in lots of different relationship baskets. And the same goes for our identity and, and where we get our affirmation. And, you know, for me, this is one of the core ways that work and parenting help each other is that we have more places to get our psychological needs met. And I think that's a very powerful thing. And again, you know, it doesn't have to be that you work outside of the home, but it's more that it's helpful to have lots of different roles that you have in your life. And that's what the science as far back as like the 1800s shows is that we are more likely to have better well-being if we have more role obligations. And so on the one hand, it feels like, oh no, but I'm so taxed and I'm so tired and overwhelmed. That is true, right? And so we need to have self-compassion along for the ride because it is hard. I mean, I, I think um, I don't want to sort of be singing about all the joys of working parenthood. Like I, I live the reality. It is hard. I am tired and cranky a lot of the time. And at the same time, it's sort of a both and. And at the same time, it gives you access to greater enrichment and opportunities for happiness and fulfillment that we can't have if we're only engaged in one role because our life gets narrower and it just becomes harder to access some of the things that most humans need on a daily basis. Can you talk a little bit about why the primary breadwinner, often a husband, a man, um, doesn't always experience the same level of tension around these competing roles of work and parenting, especially when we want as women so often to be these hands-on high quality parents and you even alluded to it in your book at one point. You said, you know, my husband doesn't feel the same corresponding <laughs> guilt. Why is that? Is it important for that to shift? Is this biological? Is it a societal construct? Do we just live with it? How do you see all that? <laughs> well, it's a great question. And I never totally know how to answer it because it's such a complicated answer. And I don't think we actually know fully the answer. There's interesting biological science. It's sort of a nature versus nurture question. And those are, you know, phenomenally hard to answer and disentangle. I think we do know that there's a little bit of both nature and nurture in it. Um, there are certainly messages that girls get from very, very early on that we are supposed to prioritize relationships and that our role is to be connected in the family. And sometimes those messages are very subtle and sometimes they're extremely blatant. Um, you know, and 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 there is a biological piece to it. You know, we are more likely to be wired to want to engage in maternal caregiving. But that, you know, I actually think that there are more similarities than differences between women and men. I just think they get expressed differently. And I think a lot of that is social. I will say that my husband may have had less guilt, but he had, he felt a lot of uh, anxiety about breadwinning because I was like freaking out about my job. And so he was worried that he was going to have to bear the responsibility for our income exclusively. And so, you know, why is that? He felt pressure of, from society and from the way that we negotiated around our gender roles. So I don't think that men don't have this work-family tension. I just think it stereotypically manifests differently. And I will also say that I have lots of examples in the book and, that, and men who have reached out to me who talk about very similar things that more stereotypically female, feminine uh, 
individuals that I've spoken with have described the challenges that they have. And so I do think that it's really an individual thing. And at the end of the day, you know, it's really about figuring out what to do with your tension, right? The tension that you have between the way that you want to engage in the roles and what's possible for you given your constraints. So for example, you know, if you need to sustain full-time employment to to make ends meet and you want to be a really engaged parent, that is hard and there are ways to get pieces of the full-time engagement and a fulfilling professional work life um, that just requires some creativity and thinking and a lot of willingness to to be flexible with within your constraints. Um, and so I, you know, getting back to the gender question, I I don't know fully the answer. I think it really depends and varies, and there's probably more similarities than differences. And it can be very frustrating as a woman. Yes. <laughs> say that that is also true. Yes. And I love that you brought up the breadwinning piece. I remember when Brave Rider finally was t- taking off. And for the first time, I was making more money than my husband. This was probably 2005, 2006. And I was walking out the door to get in the car with him to go out for dinner. And we had just like done our taxes and figured everything out. And it suddenly hit me, oh my gosh, my job is no longer optional. Like I'm paying for the mortgage out of my job. This isn't just lacrosse money or Shakespeare camp money. This is like real money. And I had this sudden feeling of dread, like I couldn't leave my job. And I got in the car and I said to my husband at the time, I just realized what you've been feeling for the last 15 years. I did not know this is what it felt like to be responsible to keep this whole ship going. Thank you for all those years. I did not know what it felt like till today. And I think sometimes we underappreciate that when we take on the full time parenting role. We're wondering, does he get what I'm going through? But likewise, maybe less expressed, he might be wondering, do you understand what I'm going through? <laughs> like, A hundred percent. So Julie, I specialize in couples therapy. And what you just described is the is what often happens in marital in marital therapy, where you know the wife drags the husband, and this is this is on average. This is not always true, but it is more common than not that the wife is really frustrated that the husband isn't understanding what our experience is like with trying to both work and stay engaged as a parent and you you know not understanding sort of the the social pressure that many women face and the husband will say you know you tell me all the time that i don't understand what your life is like but you don't understand the pressure that i'm under you don't you think that i go to work and you know <laughs> i enjoy reading my email and taking my time in the bathroom but it's it's meeting after meeting and I'm stressed out and I feel like I come home after a hard day and you're so unhappy with me and I try to do something and you criticize the way I do it. So it's like both people are so um, immersed in how painful their experience is that it's really, really hard to be empathic towards the pain of another person. And that's so much of what couples therapy is about. Um, and hopefully I give some piece of that in the book. I do. I have a chapter on uh you know, bolstering connections while you're a working parent, because I think it's really, really hard because we're so overwhelmed with all the demands that it can really cause our relationship to fall to the bottom of the priority list. But it can also really cause us to miss, like sort of neglect to see, to be unable to see what our partner's experience is like. And then we both feel so alone in it, which is really painful for both people. 
Wow, that is really well said. You talk a lot about values being a way to guide us in this world of parenting and working. Can you give our listeners a meaningful understanding of what a value is versus, say, an ideology? I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, When I was having infants over and over again, I really thought that breastfeeding was a value. But actually, it was more of an ideology. I thought breast is best at all costs, which made me make some really irrational decisions around childcare. Uh, And rather than seeing that breastfeeding was a strategy to match a value that I had, which was healthy, low-cost nutrition, bonding and closeness with my baby, easy to administer, good for travel. Those were the values that breastfeeding expressed. But I got attached to breastfeeding as an ideology, which at a certain point, you know, couldn't go out with my husband. I, I breastfed for 12 years with no break. And so never could leave my babies because I wouldn't use a bottle because I believed that that was an inferior way to feed babies. Do you see? So what's the difference? How do you describe values when we're talking about parenting and work? I I love this question. I don't think anyone's ever posed it to me as a, a difference between ideology and values. I mean, ideology is sort of like a belief system and values, the way that they get described is a quality of action. And so the the metaphor that's most typically used, um, so I practice a treatment called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is an evidence-backed treatment. And I know you're good friends with Diana Hill and that she, and you have spoken a good amount about acceptance and commitment therapy, but values are really a huge part of the work. And so the metaphor that gets commonly used to describe what values are is that imagine that you're climbing to the top of a mountain, right? And Getting to the top of the mountain is your goal. So values are often distinguished from goals. Uh, Values describe how you're going to get to the top of the mountain. A goal is the destination that you want to get to. And ideology might be like, it is important to get up the mountain. (laughs) (laughs) Mountain climbing is the right thing to do on a weekend. (laughs) Um, And the values are intentional. They, they describe sort of like moment to moment how you show up. So for example, if it's a beautiful day, are you going to try to get a good workout? And so your value is like, you know, health, or is it going to be savoring the moment, stopping and like breathing in and noticing the sunshine on your skin, looking down at the beautiful flowers. And there's no, there's not a wrong answer. It's just how, what's the quality of action that you want to engage in step-by-step step as you travel up the mountain. Now, circumstances can change. So say there's like a big thunderstorm and you may shift your value from, you know, exercise and health or savoring the moment to prioritizing safety. And you may look for a place to shelter or you may, um, it may be really hot. And so you may decide that the healthy action isn't to keep going up the mountain, but actually to go back down and make sure that you have hydration. And so unlike a a belief system, an ideology Values allow a lot of flexibility because they shift based on the con- context that you're in. So, you know, like the mountain metaphor, like what's the weather? How's your body feeling? Who are you with? So if you're with somebody, are you going to chat? Or are you going to stay silent to stay connected? Are you going to allow them to go ahead and give each other independence? Or are you going to try to stay together? So it's a lot of context and then a willingness to be flexible as circumstances change. And as you're describing, the ideology really keeps you rigid in a set of behaviors that may not work for you and may not represent how you most want to show up moment to moment. 
Does that make sense? Oh, gosh. No, that's the best analogy and explanation I've ever heard. I didn't of... come up with it. It's sort of like one of these classic things. I, I need to attribute that appropriately. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah. You're such a good academic that way. But I think the reason that it really spoke to me is because I I think the lack of flexibility has to be one of the hallmarks of difference between ideology and the values. And so when I think about homeschooling parents in particular who have a really strong value around being the person who delivers education, um, it could quickly become an ideology. You know, I I watched a friend of mine who uh, went through a very big medical crisis face whether or not to put her kids in school. And what was shattering her was her attachment to the method of education rather than education itself. Do you know? And in that moment, the education would be superiorly delivered through a school because she was so infirm. And so taking all those pieces into account, I think when you were talking about in the work-parent balance, you had some ideas around values that would be maybe helpful for us to think about. What would those values be when you're making those transitions between giving full attention to work, then to parenting, maybe to homework? (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, there's these kind of values clarification questions that we ask as therapists and that I try to pose in the book. And and similar to you with the ideology, as you are remembering back around nursing or your friend around education, you know, it's it's the sort of why. What does this mean to me? And what does this mean about how I want to show up moment to moment? That's kind of what you, what you want to get to. Not that this is important, but why is it important? What's the quality of that that matters? And so for you, it might have been like, you know, it sounded like a lot of the descriptions that you gave around nursing were that it was like very practical and and made a lot of sense. But then it's interesting because if you sort of zoom out and say, well, does it does it still make sense even if it means that I'm not having these nights out or taking care of my my independent time or, or taking care of my relationship with my partner or allowing myself a break to sleep or allowing my body a chance to rest and recover? Is that still practical? Because if that's the value that I'm trying to embody with nursing, would there be a place to be more flexible so that I could really fulfill that value a little bit more? Um, And then similar, you know, if, you know, high quality education is what matters and you think, you know, for most, for the most part, I can deliver that better, I think, than anybody else. But then you have a health issue or, or, you know, uh, a demand that takes you away or distracts you for a time, or or there's a subject area that you're not connecting with your kid around. If making sure that your child gets the highest quality education is the value that you're trying to embody, then you may have to be more flexible in how you act moment to moment to make sure that you continue to live that value. Um, so some of the questions that I think can be helpful, and these are just some examples, there's so many of them, is you know, consider a difficult patch of life. What are you most proud of having done or having stood for? And if there were things that you're not proud of, well, how would you most want to handle it next time it comes around? Because life is like that. Like if you had a challenge, it'll probably come back around and experiences that we regret are our best teachers, right? Okay, what about that was not how I wanted to show up? And how would how would I want to show up the next time that came around? Um, this is something I talk about a lot with couples who fight. Okay, like, you know, you were really harsh with your partner. That isn't how, you know, your value is to be kind and compassionate and curious. 
what would it look like if you were kind, compassionate, and curious, even if you were really angry? Like, what would you say? And we kind of practice that. So it's kind of getting your behaviors to match up with your values, even when the way that you feel or thoughts that come up aren't lined up with your values. So it's allowing your values to guide you instead of the emotions or the thoughts. That's sort uh-huh. of the, the, the trick. Guess what? We've got a special Black Friday and Cyber Monday deal this year that is the first of its kind. We're going to knock your socks off, I promise. And in fact, if you want our best discounts, we're giving them to the members of our text messaging community. That's right. So if you want that to be you, be sure you text the word POD, P-O-D, to 1-833-947-3684. Don't worry, that number is in the show notes, so you can just go there. You don't have to get in a car accident trying to jot that down somewhere. Stay tuned for more details. We will be sharing them via text message and also on this podcast each week in November. Can't wait to make you acquainted with the great offers we have coming your way. Thanks for listening. More soon. So tell me more about the value of embracing lousy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is kind of a mindset shift, but it is, I mean, it is sort of that idea that like our our most rotten moments in life are really our, our best teachers. And it kind of goes back to, you know, Buddhist ideology. I shouldn't say ideology now that we've sort of said ideology is really <laughs> rigid, but Buddhist ideas. That, yes. Um, there's this great book whose title I love. The, the book itself is wonderful, but the title just kind of captures it. But it's by Thich Nhat Hanh, and the title is No Mud, No Lotus. And the idea here is that the beautiful lotus grows out of this gross, sticky mud. And that's often true, right? If you think about your most painful experiences and you think about how they taught you, how they allowed you to grow, how they gave you insight, how they gave you a greater ability to connect with other people going through similar things. Those are often our most powerful experiences. And it actually helps us to endure those rotten experiences when we have that attitude, because we sort of open up to it and allow that learning to happen. Um, The other thing that I like to really think about is that, you know, life is uncomfortable anyway. And so when we think about the lousy experiences as something that shouldn't be, we sort of create this unwinnable situation because there's no way to not have uncomfortable situations. And so we feel like we're failing if we feel bad. And I think this is where the conversation about work-family conflict really um, does a huge disservice to working parents because it's as if the if the world were a better place, you know, if we had better infrastructure, better marriages, more flexible workplaces, easier children, more money in the bank, we wouldn't feel work-family conflict. And the trouble with that is that it's not true, right? If you have these multiple roles in your life, if it's work and parenting or if it's parenting and like this hobby that you're really into, you're going to have moments where like you wish you could be in two places at once, but you're only one person. Like there's no way around it. That is a part of the human experience. And so rather than wishing those away, seeing those as a sign that you have a rich, full life and that you have opportunities to pick and choose and to let go a little and learn from that is so much more powerful than wishing you could overcome it and never feeling like you like you succeed in that. 
Does yeah, that make that, sense? Yeah, it does. It sounds like my next question, actually. I was going to ask <laughs> you about the growth mindset that is supportive to a working parent. A lot of our audience is familiar with Carol Dweck's work, and I loved how you expressed it inside your book. So can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Growth mindset is one of my favorite constructs. So as most of you listeners probably know, so growth my fixed mindset is when you think that we, is, is the belief, the ideology that we have inborn capacities. It's sort of like you are good at math or you're not good at math. Um, you know, I have this temperament or I have that temperament. Um, I am a happy person or I'm an unhappy person. In all of these ways, the research has shown that the mindset that we have actually kind of uh, pushes us in one direction or another. So if you think that things can't change, you're more likely to behave in ways that cause you to stay stuck. Whereas if you have a growth mindset and you believe that, hey, I can grow, uh, I'll share another common example that happens in the couples therapy context, which is people come in and they say, well, we just don't have sexual chemistry. And actually, that's a real fixed mindset. Whereas if you say, you know, we haven't figured out how to connect in the bedroom, and but we're willing to work on it, there's so much that can be done. And so the so that fixed versus growth mindset is a really powerful concept and the ability to kind of say, okay, I'm having a fixed mindset here and it's causing me to stay a little bit stuck. It might be helpful if I tried to adopt more of a growth mindset and see the possibilities of learning and growing and trying to find the ways that this can work better for me. And that applies to working parenthood in a really important way. So the way that I talk about it is many people... And I think this is really because of the way that we tend to talk about work and family in the public conversation. We have a work-family conflict mindset where we're like, we have it and it's wrong and there's nothing we can do about it. And unless like something outside of us changes and that thing that's outside of us that is not changing very quickly. And so we're all kind of screwed and, and like the system is at fault. And what I suggest is dropping into the the working parenthood version of a growth mindset, which I call a work family enrichment mindset. And that's the idea that we have uncomfortable experiences, but there are all sorts of ways to use the conflict to grow as individuals, to get better at our parenting, to get better at our work, and to find greater enrichment. And there's three different pathways that I talk about um, accessing greater work enrichment. So the first is the skill transfer effect. And that's the idea that whenever you step into one role and grow your skills, those skills can help out in the other role. So for example, in parenting, when you're really patient with your student who's learning to write and it's very painful because they're having tantrums and meltdowns and you really have to learn to kind of sit with the discomfort and listen to what they're feeling and validate and sort of put their agenda first, guess what? Those kinds of skills are really useful in the workplace. <laughs> And if you work as a barista or a hairstylist or an architect or um, a psychologist or a writer, like there's so many ways that the special skills, the unique skills that you have in your work can really help make your parenting more creative, give you perspective that you can offer your kids and you can model for your kids what it's like to do something that is outside of the family that contributes to the community that contributes to the household you know functioning because now you can keep a roof over your head and that you're juggling multiple roles so there's all these ways that the work that the that there's this skill transfer effect the second pathway is the buffer effect so if you have a really rough developmental stage with your kids, you can go into your other role and have a positive effect and sort of 
put that rough experience with your teenager into context, or if your work colleague is a real jerk or um, your boss gave you criticism, you can go home and get a hug from your kid or have like, you know, quiet time where you just enjoy dinner together. And that can really buffer the stress that you feel at work. So that's the stress buffer effect. And then the last pathway is what's called the additive effect. And that's the idea that happy lives are really built on meaning and purpose, a feeling of being fulfilled and contributing and mattering. And the, and this is where we talked about this before, but like having more roles gives us greater access to that. So the more opportunity that we have to create rich, meaningful experiences, the more happy we're going to feel. That doesn't mean it's easy, but that is an opportunity to create more happiness, even though it can be challenging in the in the process. It sounds a lot like this um, toggling between fulfillments, right? So you have certain properties that are fulfilling as a parent and then others as a working person and they sort of feed each other, whether it's through modeling or buffering or uh, accomplishment, right? There's there When you talk about a values-driven life, what it sounds like is you're giving yourself many opportunities to practice values. If you just stay in that one channel, it again is trying to ask too much of that channel. But this way, like I, I think you mentioned in the book, leaving work, coming home and snuggling with your kids on the couch and how precious and meaningful that is, partly because you were away. One of the challenges with full-time homeschooling is you never have a break from your children. And I remember the first time um, a few friends of mine and I put our kids in a little morning day camp that was offered at some church. And uh, we had been with our kids since birth. This was the first time we had done that. Our kids were gone for like three hours in the morning and we all just burst out laughing. We were standing there having a conversation while the kids went in. I say, do you realize none of us have had to leave this conversation? Like normally <laughs> one of us has to run off and wrangle a child. And we were like, is yeah. this how everyone else lives? <laughs> like it was this startling moment. And I think that then fueled this desire in me. And I formed a little group with my friends and we used to do a brunch once a month, ostensibly to plan homeschool. But really it was to be at Mimi's Cafe and talk for an hour completely without our children or husbands around. And so I think what I got from that part of your book was just the really important um, perspective of contrasting experiences when everything is always the same and we're doing the same things over and over. It's harder to appreciate the hug from a child because that child was also just hanging on you for a glass of water and then punching a sister and you had to pry them apart. So the hug is just like more body contact you don't really want, right? So I I thank you for that. I felt like it was good perspective for parents, no matter what their work is. I I love that example of you and your girlfriends going out and that being a first opportunity because it brings me back to you talking about the ideology. So if your ideology is like a good parent is always around and available to their kids, and if you dig deep into that, the why, why does that, why does that mean a good parent? It's probably because you want to be available to your kids. You want them to know that they're, you're there for them in a very profound, like fundamental way. But what if you get so depleted because they're hanging you on all the, on, on you all the time and you're like physically around, but you're just like really grumpy and like distracted then wouldn't it be more useful if you took a break? And that's why the ideology cause, that causes us to be so rigid 
is so much better served by pivoting towards like, what, what's the meaning of that ideology? What are we trying to embody as parents, as workers, as human beings functioning in the world? What's important to us there? And what are the best ways moment to moment that we can show up and, and really live in line with what really, really matters? Because sometimes, again, like we get so stuck on like, this is the right way to be that we sort of miss the forest for the trees and like don't realize that we're not showing up as our best selves. And that's an opportunity to kind of take a step back and say, what is my best self and what behavior, what action would help me to get closer to that? Gosh, that's absolutely beautiful. You mentioned that community is so important and it's key to the ability to even see when you're being ideological versus flexible, when you feel that you have the kind of support you need. You told the story of one of your births, your second child, and how you kind of resented that your parents wouldn't fly from you know California to Boston to be there for you. And then you talked about how much you would have loved having your mother-in-law babysit. I am now a grandmother. And I remember when my son and his wife had their first child, they quote, gave me the opportunity to babysit when they were both working. And so I have this really interesting perspective. I turned them down. First of all, I have a job. But secondly, I also felt like I already did that, but I am here for you. Like I will babysit. I just was at my daughter's wedding carrying around my granddaughter probably the whole time. So I think there's love to be shared, but I'm wondering if we can expand what we mean. And I think you did this in the book. So I'm, I'm teeing you up. Can we expand what we mean about community to go beyond in-laws and parents, right? Because those parents have already lived that job. My very best years of parenting, I lived in community housing. It was a huge apartment complex for missionary families. So we all had very similar backgrounds. And I just loved that I could go to therapy and leave my kids at the complex with the neighboring family, right? I loved that when I woke up in the morning and it was time to go out to play equipment, there'd be three friends and they were just right there. I didn't have to like book a time, drive anywhere, figure out if they were free. How do we do that in this modern world, create a sense of support and community for each other? Yeah, that's such a great question. And can I just pause on the fact that I love that you're sharing. So I I think that people who are parents of young children, we get caught in like, oh my God, I have so many needs because this raising of children is so So demanding and I I don't know what to do and I need some wisdom and I need some support and like, aren't my parents and in-laws supposed to be there for me? Like we have this belief and I definitely had that belief. And what I discounted was the fact that my parents and my in-laws like have a life and they have a right to their life. I think we forget that. And there are some grandparents who like all they want to do is be grandparents and like kudos to them, but we need to make room for people who, who have different ways and to recognize, as you're saying that it, it is still important to build community regardless. Like some people in my case, I don't even have um, grandparents that live close by. So even if they had wanted to, which they didn't, (laughs) I wanted them to like move across country and like, just, you know, operate as my on-site babysitters because it would have felt so good to me. But Um, that was not realistic. And that is not realistic for lots of people. And in many cases, people don't even want their parents or in-laws taking care of their children. And that is okay too. So, you know, I think the idea here is to get creative because we are as humans wired to rear children 
as a group, right? This is this anthropological term called alloparenting, and there's extensive evidence supporting that this is how humans are wired to rear children because rearing small children is incredibly taxing. And so, you know, let go of the guilt that you can't do it alone. You're not meant to do it alone. And that, for me, that's where the this research is so reassuring. Like, it's not your fault that you can't do it alone. This is not how humans are programmed. We need help. And the good news, I think, is that when you need help, you're sort of pressed to enter into a community, to find supports, to connect into a larger group of people. Um, whereas, you know, if you're only parenting and that's the only thing you ever do, then you're like, well, I don't have anything else to do. I guess I should just do it alone. And by the way, even if that is your situation, don't do it alone. Yes. <laughs> get, right. get some help because <laughs> you will get depleted. Um, so I think there's lots of creative ways to engage community, you know, make friends through your homeschooling network, uh, join a, a spiritual community, you know, engage in hobbies, find, meet people at the playground. And for me, um, you know, it was really hard as a first time parent because, you know, my situation was that I worked uh, in Providence and lived near Boston. So I wasn't living near anybody that I worked with. And we had moved pretty recently when I had a first child and my family didn't live close by. And I was so busy working and parenting my first child that I didn't really have time to engage in the community around me. And so by the time my second came, I, the the story that you're referring to is um, I didn't know what to do with my two-year-old while I gave birth to my second child. And it was really stressful. I was like, what am I going to do with this child? My husband's like, well, we can bring him to the hospital while you give birth. And I was planning to have a natural birth. And I was like, that does not sound like a good idea. First of all, it could be in the middle of the night. Second of all, he's going to be exposed to lots of blood and gore and me in a lot of pain. Like, that's not what I want. But I also, I didn't know what to do. And so I was forced to reach out to my community, which, um, you know, one of the people was my daycare provider who I felt so embarrassed to ask her, like, what's wrong with me that I don't have family that will help me out? But she was so kind, like, of course, right? I wasn't asking her, you know, to wake up in the middle of the night while I, you know, went to a spa. I was asking her for something really meaningful and she was happy to oblige. And I asked a bunch of friends and I felt sheepish and without exception, everybody was really happy to be a part of this community. And when it ended up happening, it was on a weekend and I ended up contacting a friend of mine that I didn't know super well. And she was so happy and it like cemented our friendship for life. And I it's bet. a story that, you know, connects us forevermore. And, and so I think giving us ourselves permission to ask and to be a part of community um, in ways that are outside of our comfort zone is part of how we do that. Ah, oh, such a good example. Uh, in fact, it really taps into your idea of cultivating creativity through constraints, which is exactly what you had to do to build community. I loved this quote. You said that we can grow bored and boring when we do the same thing all the time. And then you talk about stress being a story you tell yourself. So I wondered if you could talk about these three concepts that when we're doing the same thing all the time, we grow bored or boring, um, how we cultivate creativity through the constraints of our life's choices and how stress is a story. I think sometimes we really treat stress as the most true thing of all mm -hmm. in our realities, right? Mm -hmm. Stress seems to be the go-to description anytime we're not experiencing pleasure. 
And perhaps, as you're pointing out, it's a story. Um, what other stories could we tell instead <laughs> of stress as the you know theme? Wait, so I'm gonna. So the first one, cultivating I creativity. Know, yeah, creativity, cultivating constraints. Yes, and how? Um, and I was. Uh, yes, exactly. Okay. Um, all right. So cultivating creativity through constraints. I mean, that's this idea that when, you know, so stress is, stress is defined by researchers as when our demands are larger than our resources. And stress researchers don't think that stress is a bad thing. This is kind of what's cool. They actually think it's a call to increase your resources. This is how we grow. Like stressful experiences are how we get more resources because we figure out, oh, I'm, I'm missing this thing that I need to meet this demand. I need to find a way to, to get that resource available to me. So for example, um, I'm stressed out because I don't know how I'm going to finish this, this job. Well, I can ask a friend who's really talented at, at editing, or um, I can ask for an extension and get support from my boss, or I can delegate to somebody who's better at the job than I am. So in that way, the stressful experience kind of pushes us to figure out how do we meet this demand? And it causes us to need to be creative oftentimes because, you know, if we just did what we always did, we wouldn't be able to meet the demand. The whole point is that it, the demand is sort of outside of what we're currently capable of doing. And so in this strange way, stress can be a real gift. One of my favorite books, if, if um, your listeners enjoy reading, is The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal. And it's all about how we have this conversation about stress, much, much as we have a conversation about work-family conflict, that is really misleading. Like we think of stress as a bad thing. It's not. I mean, stress can be, a, stress helps us focus in on this problem at this time and meet this demand. That is what it's been for. It's very useful. Now, there are some stresses that are like imminent danger. Those are obviously not good. And we need to like take quick action and do something and like make sure that we're safe. But most of the time, stress is kind of like, okay, this demand is a little bit too much for me and I need to figure out how to be creative so that I can meet it. And so there's this whole body of research called stress reappraisal. And it's all about figuring out like, what does this stress need from me so that I can meet whatever the demand is? And what that requires, as you're pointing to, is sort of like editing that story about stress. Like, oh, no, this is terrible. This shouldn't be happening to, oh, here's an opportunity to grow in a way that's going to be uncomfortable. But at the end of it, I might really appreciate this new ability that I have or this new connection that I made. Um, that's another kind of fun fact about stress is that one of the things that it prompts us to do is to be more social, right? To ask for help, to connect with other people in order to meet a demand. And that's one of the outcomes that we can embrace, right? And this is, again, kind of embracing the lousy because stress doesn't feel comfortable. We shouldn't expect it to. The whole point is that it motivates us to do something that needs to be done. Um, and so seeing it and, and sort of crafting a story in our own minds that it can be positive, even though it doesn't feel comfortable, again, helps us to sort of tolerate this, that discomfort as we figure out our creative way to manage whatever is stressing us out. I thought of two examples of that. One is Brave Writer. We were under-resourced. I remember listening to a radio show that said, sometimes it's not a matter of being more careful with spending. You literally don't have enough funds. And when I heard that, I thought, oh, I need to work. 
And so that's when I started my writing career. And then I realized I could actually teach writing and make some money. And then later, when I read all these books on being an entrepreneur, it is people looking for money that have started some of the best companies, you know, people who are under resourced, not people from trust funds. They're not motivated to start these kinds of little startups. It's people trying to pay for, you know, lacrosse or their housing or whatever it is. Right. It's like necessity is the mother of invention. invention. Exactly. And then the other example goes so beautifully with what we were talking about with community. The co-op that I was a part of for homeschooling here in Cincinnati was started by a friend who said she was trapped in her house with her four kids in an Ohio winter homeschooling. And she thought, you know what? I can't do this alone anymore. You know, I was in California. We could go to parks, the beach. We played outside. We had picnics. Then I moved here and I was like, holy cow, this is hard. And so she put out a May Day message through email to the network saying, does anyone want to start a co-op? That co-op ended up with 100 families. It became our number one watering hole for all our relationships, for our children and for the parents. And very much just what you said, it was a stress that we all collectively felt and it got solved collectively, not individually. Yeah. Beautiful, right? I love that example. And I wonder, I mean, just like, I think it's such a great question to reflect on. Like, think about a recent stressor and how did you meet it? In what ways did you grow, connect with community, build a skill for yourself, change a perspective, build more compassion? And I mean, just like as an exercise, I think it's such a great thing to think about. I I can think of so many examples and I love the ones that you just gave, but I think it's something for each of us to really think about so that we can change the story that we have about stress so that next time stress comes up, because it will, we can like endure it with more creativity and more hopefulness. You use the language of developing grit. Mm. And what do you mean by that? But that's, that sounds related to this in my mind. Yeah. So grit is, so my favorite researcher on this topic, and it's another great book, uh, is Angela Duckworth and her book is called Grit. And she describes grit as this sort of, um, you know, stick to it attitude. Like you stick to it, stick with it no matter what. And, and it, she defines it as sort of passion plus persistence. So it's like when you're really interested and you care about something and you just never give up right? You don't give up even when it's hard. And what I think is important is that both passion and persistence are important, right? So that, you know, you care about something. And so that when it gets hard, you say, well, this is important enough that I'm going to figure it out, right? That's like where the creativity comes and like, I'm going to figure it out. And this is also where growth mindset comes because I'm not going to keep doing the same old thing, right? Because doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is how we define insanity let's try something different. Let's call on my resources. Let me ask a friend who might have some expertise. Let me take a break. I always I always think about um, my family and I were taking a walk. We live close to the Charles River and we saw a couple in a canoe and they kept hitting the shore and then they would sort of bounce, push off the shore and then they would hit it again. And I always think about that as like, they didn't give up But what they didn't do is they didn't pause and think, huh, what's going on here? Like, what are we doing wrong? And what else can we try? Even if it lands us in the same spot, 
could we try something different, some different version of how we're rowing together, you know, cadence or pressure, or maybe one of us takes a turn and the other pauses and just try something different. And I think that's, you know, it's like where creativity comes in. So you've got to have the passion, the persistence, and then a willingness to try different things, even if it could fail, because you don't know it could, it could succeed. And if you're feeling stuck, that's so important. So the grid is really important. And what the research shows, I'll, I'll just sort of um, share this fun fact too, is that grit is more important than talent by two times, right? So if you stick with something, you're two times as likely to succeed as somebody who has the talent but doesn't stick with it. And that's really important. I mean, you you help people teach writing. And I would, I would argue that very few people have natural talent in writing. I know I didn't, but I stuck with it. And now I think I'm a pretty solid writer but it was because I stuck with it. And I was like, I really love this and I'm not very good at it, but I'm going to read as much as I can and think about what kinds of qualities of writing I like. And I'm going to listen to podcasts about writing and I'm going to practice and practice and I'm going to take feedback. And even though it kind of stings, I'm going to reflect on what I could do better um, from people who give me that feedback. And, And that is what grit is about, is sort of like being willing to not be good at something caring enough to try to get better and sticking with it even when it's uncomfortable. That sounds like parenting. That sounds like work. That sounds like homeschool. You have just done a beautiful job of laying out the values and the perspectives and the practices that we can all bring into our lives to make this a more seamless even those stress-filled experience. Uh, gosh, thank you, Yael, for this beautiful book. How can we connect with you online? Um, well, you can find me and my writing at my my author website, which is yaelshonebrun.com. Um, and if you don't want to learn, figure out how to spell that, you can also find me at my podcast website. I'm also a podcast co-host of Psychologist Off the Clock. And our website, which is easier to spell than my name, is offtheclockpsych.com. And then, of course, you can find out about the book by ordering Work Parent Drive wherever you get books. And I just want to take a moment and say thank you for all the positive impact that you've had on me. I This conversation was just as magical as I knew it would. You're such a thoughtful, inspirational, wise person. And I, it was <sighs> such a delight to speak with you. Yael, you are a delight. I appreciate your work so much. I felt like I learned a bunch today. And I'm very excited for our audience to hear from you. Everything you said will be in the show notes. So if you're listening, you can just go there and don't worry about spelling. (laughs) Um, Thank you for being my guest today. Thank you, Julie. Be sure to head out and grab Yael Schoenbrunn's book, Work, Parent, Thrive, and transform your experience of being a parent who works. This is the part of the podcast where I ask you to leave a review. You can leave stars or words, whatever your choice is. If you've already left a review, thank you so much. You never know, Natalie might read yours one of these weeks. The truth is I love podcasting and I couldn't do it without you. I'd love your ideas for the next topics you'd like me to discuss on the show. To let us know, reach out to us via our SMS or texting number. That number is 1-833-947-3684. I know that's a mouthful. Don't worry, it's in the show notes. Simply text the word POD to be added to the podcast group 
And then just text us any ideas you have for future shows. We're already building a beautiful Excel spreadsheet with all your ideas. It's Natalie again from the Brave Writer team. And again, enjoying your five-star reviews. And today's comes from Sunshine49. COVID-19 might have pushed me into homeschooling, but truth be told, the pandemic was more of a convenient excuse to try out this great adventure of homeschooling. I have found these podcasts to be incredibly motivating and paradigm shifting. The Brave Writer program is also a perfect fit with my highly anxious, mildly autistic youngest son. He is actually looking forward to our homeschooling days and partnering with him has become my greatest joy. My oldest child is watching this unfold and is now asking to be homeschooled as well. Thank you for your motivating words. That's so good to read. Thank you, Sunshine49, for such a wonderful review. Today's episode was produced by Nova Media with support from team members Jeanette Hall and Natalie Miele. I'm Julie Bogart, author of The Brave Learner and Raising Critical Thinkers. I'm also the founder of BraveWriter.com, an innovative approach to writing instruction. You've been listening to The Brave Writer Podcast. Until next time, keep going. Think well. I'm rooting for you. Thank you.